Welcome to the Sight Pen Podcast. This is episode number 4,000. Four. Actually, it's just four. It's four. Actually, we should have really done the random thing that we yep. were going to do before. <laughs> um, but I had to name them, and then I started putting real numbers with them because it was easier for some reason. I don't know. Have you ever seen um, how the Mr. Robot episodes are ordered? I don't even know what Mr. Robot is. You should Me watch neither. Mr. Robot. Oh, wait. That show. Yes. I, I didn't. No, I haven't noticed. It's fun. No, it's no, I, yeah, I, I, it's a, it's an okay show. I, bl- see, I blinked it out because I was just like, eh. And you watched okay. the whole thing? Uh, yeah, I'm right. caught up. It's all right. We'll talk about it later. Cool. So, today, we are going to be talking about some fun stuff. Uh, we have Paul Shannon here with us. Paul, why don't you say hi? Hello, how's everybody? They, there's no one there. They won't talk back. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah. Um, this isn't a call-in show or a live audience show, although it would be kind of fun to have like canned laughs and stuff because then someone would laugh at things I say. So um, I feel like that would be used inappropriately. It absolutely would be <laughs> all the time. Do you know that like all those recordings are of people that like were in studios in like the 50s and they recorded them all and then they just use those over and over. So all those people are dead. When you I heard laughing. that. Isn't that spooky? I think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Paul is a software engineer at SitePen, and he's going to be talking about some fun stuff with uh, template strings and um, the importance of having a development strategy at the outset of a project. Woo! Yeah. Woo! A deployment strategy. Uh, did I really? It's do also that? important. What did I say? You said a development, development strategy, but that's also good. Oh, it's super important to know how to develop stuffs. See, what a lot of people don't know is that I've actually have dyslexia, so. Um, reading stuff and saying it out loud is actually a very difficult thing for me. Um, and I always get words wrong, like that, where I just make up that things say different things. Because it did say that when I read it the first time. <laughs> to me, it said that. Uh, we also have Neil Roberts. Hi. Hi, buddy. I'm just happy to be here. Me too. I'm happy you're here again. Thanks. And of course, Nick Nisi. Woo! <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get that that clip. Remember when I shared that clip of that stand-up comedian from like the '90s who was like, "Oh, Nicholas, you're so strong." <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get that and just like put it into every episode whenever I introduce you because it just makes me laugh every time. Mom, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel.com. Go there. Pick your developer lineup. And uh, try to see who's going to check in the most code. Uh, we moved away from DraftKings after the whole money scandal, the insider uh, trading type, insider betting, I guess you'd call it. Um, so we're, we're going to stick with FanDuel now. So just go there and enter promo code. Um, what? The, uh? <laughs> you got to get that right. Um, and also brought to you by SitePen, of course, because this is the SitePen podcast. So it would be weird if it was brought to you by somebody else. Uh, so today, I was going to get to this, and I forgot. Uh, Neil, you're going to talk about Virtual DOM. I am. Uh, you have a bug of the week. And Nick, you are going to talk about Chrome extensions. Yeah. All right. So we're going to choose things a little bit differently this episode. So we are starting with a spotlight on 
something. I'm trying to come up with a really cool name for this segment where we talk about cool features of, you know, uh, upcoming versions of ECMAScript or Yes, 2015. Yes, what is it called these days? Is it 2015? I think that's right. It, that's right. Uh, yeah, and that's 16. what they're calling it. Okay. 16's next year, I think. Well, we're so close now. We're just going to talk about new stuff that's coming, or new stuff yeah. that's here that you could use, maybe. Um, so that's this segment, and we're going to uh, kick that off now. Um, maybe I'll put in a cool drop here when I actually edit it, um, but I don't have one ready. So. You need cool reporter on the spot intro music or something. Oh, that's a really good idea. All right, I'm using that. I'm going to try to make that happen. All right, um, so, awesome. So listeners might hear that like right now. Uh, so go ahead, Paul. Why don't you tell us about Temple Strings? You should be excited. I'm excited. So, um, Tor, you actually asked me if there was anything that, uh, um, since I've been doing e- uh, ECMAScript's 2015 or whatever they're calling it nowadays, development, um, and you were asking me, do I miss anything when I go back to, to old ES5 stuff? And it, it turns out there's like a really simple feature uh, in uh, ES2015, and then that's template strings. And, and so the, the template string is something that lets you, with a back tick, um, create a string, and it could be multi-line. And it kind of auto escapes all of your like quotation marks and and things for you, so you you don't have to do all the the escaping you have to do in regular strings. And then on top of that, you can um, you can add variables in in line with it. So you know a little dollar sign and curly braces, and then you can you can pull variable names out of scope, or you can just insert little little things of of JavaScript to to, to do whatever you know if you need to add a few numbers or something like that. You can actually put these in these template strings, and I, when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of a, a silly little sugar on top of JavaScript. And uh, it turns out that I actually miss it when I go back because now I have to, you know, end my string, and uh, when I want to insert a variable, you know, put that in there and concatenate it all together, and it just ends up being um, a lot nicer to have like this templated string. Um, so. I would say, you know, as our first feature, it's something very simple, something that's easy to fly under the radar, but um, template strings have, have been really nice. So uh, if you like to, um, you know, do the plus, uh, you know, like end your string plus this thing plus start a new string, you wouldn't want to use that. But for everyone else who, uh, like normal people on Earth, um, who hate doing that constantly and screwing it up, um, especially when you have like single quote and double quote and you start your string with one and then the string you're putting in has that and that's fun. Um, yeah. So can um, can people use that now? Um, and how would they do that? It is available in some browsers. Uh, so some browsers will nowadays support template strings. Um, I don't have the, the matrix on me right now, but uh, you can just try it out in the console and find out if you can. If you can't, um, there's a lot of transpilers that'll transpile. I mean, there's Babel and TypeScript. Both will transpile over um, your templated strings and uh, allow you to do cool stuff like right now with it. That sounds really awesome. So how do you actually, um, uh, is it just kind of inbuilt? Like you just say, do you just, like you're creating a normal string, but you're able to do these other things? You have to call something? Like how do you actually utilize it? Yeah, you don't have to call anything special. It's you use your your backtick character, which is the 
the single quote that's to the left of your one on most keyboards and under your tilde. Yeah, I think I've never pushed that before. I don't think anybody has, and somebody discovered it and put it in JavaScript. That was a good idea, because I think I've used the (laughs) tilde before. Like, you know, I think I've only ever pressed that button in combination with shift. I think that the first time I actually, for like in, in reality, I saw the backtick character, I couldn't figure out where it was on my keyboard. I saw it in some code, like in Markdown. Someone had, you know, used that. And I was, I sat there staring at my keyboard, like, what? character is that so i ended up at first just copying it because i couldn't figure out where it was coming from um and then i felt really dumb when i realized what that was i always press that in os 10 in combination with the command key to switch between my windows in the same application oh yep that's a good tip that's really nice and just to um to update what paul was saying since i do have the compatibility matrix in front of me uh oh good yeah edge firefox and chrome all have it uh but there is some Problems in Edge. The two-string conversion does not actually work yet. Ah. Do you know, do you have to use um, use strict in Chrome in order to get the, the back tick character, or does it work right now without use strict? I believe it works without. Yes, it works okay. without. That's, really that's cool. for other, we'll have other topics on that, but uh, one thing that you did run into in the last week or so was was trying to use the native class syntax, right? And, and that, yeah, yeah, there's a whole yeah, there's a whole bunch of syntax that is is behind um, use uh, use strict, including yeah, let some in some of them, and um, for some reason you have to to put it in there in both Node and Chrome because they re- rely on the same JavaScript engine. So, what does use script do or use strict do? It's a strict so subset use, of JavaScript. Yep, it prevents you from doing things that are. You pretty much universally considered stupid, I guess. Um, well, oh man, so I can't use it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are some things that it prevents? I think it prevents. Um, does it prevent using with? See, the biggest thing that I know it prevents is uh, it doesn't auto set this to window. Yeah. It sets it to null. Oh, nice. Um, and it also doesn't let you use callee and a few other things like that on arguments. Yes. Which, if you're a Dojo developer, uh, you know that you can't use strict mode and Dojo base declare in the same file. That's right. Yeah, we rely on Kali to figure out the chain, I believe. Yes. Isn't that correct? Or, or the function, and then the chain. Yep. Well, it's definitely a um, <laughs> the wild, wild west it sometimes, it feels like. Um, Whenever you start mixing stuff together like that, and at least right now, it feels that way to me um, from what I've seen and, and experienced where you go to do something and, well, it conflicts with this thing that can't do it and this one can, and then you end up using some tool like um, uh, you know, Babel or whatever to like just smooth everything over. Um, yeah, transpilers nowadays are really the best way that you're going to have to to get all the new features and not have to worry about all of your targets. I don't worry about them. It's just that the code doesn't work then. So, you know, (laughs) I'm I'm worried. (laughs) Pretty sure it's not going to work. Okay. Um, That's a great little segment there. I like it. We're going to keep that and we're going to come up with a cool name and cool sound effects or something there. Um, Maybe, maybe a kitten meowing. (laughs) Just see if I people love are paying it. attention. Like, what? Why? What does that have to do with anything? It has nothing just, to do with anything. It's just something. 
Just alarm them. Just have a baby crying or something. Just uh, shock their senses. Yes. Well, only people with kids. Where they oh, start yeah. looking around, going, where's my, what, what? what? Um, okay, so Neil, you want to talk today about virtual DOM and I some do. of the stuff that you've been doing. Yeah, this kind of continues off of uh, what I was talking about last week with uh, looking at what we're going to do with the next uh, generation of Dojo widgets. Um, and it's something that, that we've uh, talked quite a bit about as something that will probably be part of the system. Uh, and what virtual DOM is, uh, is a sort of a, a proxy for uh, making changes to the DOM. Uh, and it's really good with uh, template systems. Uh, so the idea is that if you have uh, a template that has uh, a div or a header, for example, uh, that changes its value <coughs> depending on uh, some other user input, uh, instead of going in and uh, going into that node in the DOM and, and swapping out the underlying inner HTML or one of the other methods you would use to replace that string, uh, you would use this uh, DOM proxy. And in the DOM proxy, you would sort of define your HTML again. Uh, it's not always done exactly like that, um, but you would put in like, this is what the HTML should look like uh, through some method. And then what it will do is it'll go through and it'll compare what you say the DOM should look like with how the DOM actually looks. And it'll do uh, a difference between the two of them. So it will figure out that it needs to do that inner HTML change and it'll perform the inner HTML change itself. Uh, and there's a couple of uh, really big benefits you get from this. Uh, one of the biggest ones is that depending on the implementation and we're still pretty early in some of the implementations, uh, it would uh, be much faster than a bunch of other uh, ways of doing it other than manually doing it. Uh, the reason that this is important to something like a widget system is uh, kind of one of the more emerging trends in uh, front-end web development is to make things more stateless. So the problem that you run into when you're manipulating HTML by hand uh, is that you would you would make a change assuming that that things are a certain way. So you would assume that that header element is there. You'd assume that you'd be able to change. Uh, the the string underneath that header, uh, but what you might not realize is that some other function that call that was called before that um, put some element inside of that that it really thought was very important and expects to be there. So then, when you go and you change the HTML yourself, it kind of crushes the uh, expected uh, hierarchy that another part of your code had. So when you use things like a virtual DOM, uh, you try to make it so that it's stateless, so that you are uh, going through kind of a single render method that, depending on the properties that are set, uh, will make those changes for you. So if one part of your code put that uh, that that uh, extra element in there, it would be part of a longer function, and you'd be able to more easily spot uh, that, that that change was there. So there's a couple of... Does that make sense, first of all? I think it does. So uh, applying that to widgets uh, in particular, like what are the challenges that... I, I think you kind of outlined it, but 
um, I guess like as far as the widget system specifically, when I think of widgets, you know, I'm thinking more like, I don't know, controls of, you know, the page versus like a header. Um, is it just kind of the same thing or are there, are there additional challenges when you're doing with interactive, you know, widget systems and stuff? So the biggest thing with widgets is uh, inheritance. Uh, and that's where you run into really, really big problems is that, especially if you're working with different versions of widgets. So when you uh, subclass a widget, you might go in and you might say, uh, when some event happens, make this DOM manipulation. And it might work when you first uh, have subclassed that widget. And then later on, the widget author might actually change the entire structure of the template. So it might look completely different. Uh, and, and something that you thought was there before might not be there anymore. So when you try to make that manual change, it, it can blow up. And you'll have to uh, change the way that you've written your subclass in order to handle it. Uh, the idea with uh, using virtual DOM is that you would have a singer, a single uh, render method there. Uh, and then that would go through and create your HTML. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the infrastructure that we have now that would let you make that mistake. Uh, they would have to have the right hooks for you to be able to make the changes that you want to do, or you would have to overwrite it completely uh, with your own uh, template in HTML uh, if you wanted to to change it to suit your own behavior. So can I try and, so, and say like a... Yeah, go ahead. Can I try and, and provide like a really simple example that might help? Yeah, no. Clarify it. I don't know. I, I'm confused, so I don't. I don't think you should do that. No, go ahead. <laughs> this hopefully will help, but maybe it'll just make things more confusing. But um, <laughs> like, let's say that you have like a a list of items. You have an array in JavaScript of of image URLs that or something that you want to render to the page. So to render an image to the page, you have to create the image tag and throw it into the page. And so you could loop over the array and do that. But then if you wanted to add another um, image into it you would have to update the the HTML and add that in there, but also make sure that it's synced up in the array so that you have, you're kind of managing the state in two places. Whereas with something like the virtual DOM, um, as Neil was saying with that render method, you, you call the render method and it goes over and, and knows how to take the array of images and turn it, or I'm sorry, the array of URLs and turn it into image tags to put into the to the DOM. And so it does that. And then when you add in another image, all you have to do is really add it into that array and then know when to call the render method again or, or an update method or whatever. And it will do a, it'll re-render it and then diff what's currently in the DOM with the newly created one and see that there's only a single image that's not in there. And then it would just do the, um, the DOM updates that it needs to get that image in there to sync the, uh, everything back up again. Is that kind of explaining it in a... Yeah, and I think that helps even clarify like why this when this can be really fast. Uh, and I would say if you're dealing with a non-trivial change uh, to your to the DOM, yeah, for something like a giant list of images, one of the ways you would probably would do it before is just remove every single row from from that list right. and then create the DOM again from scratch. So being able to do a diff if uh, if just like one of ten URLs has changed. That diff's going to be very, very fast because all it's going to be doing is swapping out uh, where the URL is for one of the images. Right. Instead of having to clear it all out and create it all over again. And it uh, may and not... It's not going to be... Yeah, it won't be faster in every situation, but non-trivial uh, DOM changes, it should be a lot faster. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it may not seem like a whole lot, but um, it... 
like the thing that it's trying to get around is these DOM updates are usually the bottleneck in front end applications. So yep. trying to minimize what actually has to be written to the DOM and then being intelligent about when to call render or update or, or whatever you call it to make those changes, I think is, is what it's really, what the real benefit of it is. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely lets you batch changes all, all at the same time Yep. and then go through and render at once. So yeah, if you have 10 different functions that get called in quick, quick succession, they might have made DOM updates before, and now all they'll be doing is changing properties, and then those properties will dictate how the DOM gets laid out. Yeah. So in your your trivial example of you know an image, yep. you know you talk about that. Oh, you know, currently a lot of tools out there, or even just developers themselves, would just swap out the entire, you know, just dump the uh, HTML and just you know put in a whole new set of you know elements. Yep. Um, and you know when you think about one, you're like, well, you know, you might think, well, I could, you could just loop through. You don't have to do that. But when we start thinking about uh, more interactive things, or you know, things where there might be several items coming in in different spots, um, you start to see that the power of that that it can quickly just scan the whole, um, you know, the new DOM and in or the virtual DOM and the existing DOM, and then swap out, you know, in five different places, so you don't have to manually figure that out, or alternatively dump the whole thing and, and re-render it. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting for things like uh, built-in stateful components. Uh, an example would be uh, an input field in a form, right? Uh, so you might be typing inside of it, and you might have the cursor on the third uh, letter of the word that you're typing. Uh, and if you were to go through and blow out that HTML and put it in again, they would lose focus, they would lose the position of the cursor. Uh, even if the only thing that was changing was like the background color of that input. Whereas uh, the virtual DOM can say, no, the value is exactly the same as it was before. I'm going to leave it as it is. The cursor will stay in the same position. But what I'll do is I'll change the background color. So it can change the background color without interfering with the, the stateful component that you're using. That's nice. So it, is there a point that the virtual DOM decides to just replace a component because there's so many changes? Or uh, that is that not... Is there that Go depends ahead. on the implementation. Um, so right now, right now, one of the 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 most popular implementation I think would be React, uh, which is done by Facebook. Um, but there's more people that are starting to work on more virtual DOM implementations. Let's uh, make sure we add Facebook to the show notes so people know <laughs> what that is. It's when they Google. That's a Facebook. .com, right? Yeah. yeah, I think I think it's an EDU or something. I don't remember. Uh, mm -hmm. And then there's another uh, there's another newer framework called uh, JS Blocks that I'm looking at as well. Uh, and then they claim to have an even faster DOM implementation, uh, virtual DOM implementation, uh, which would make sense. It's, uh, you know, back in the day when we were doing um, query selector in JavaScript, um, those implementations getting fast, got faster and faster and faster until they were, you know, 10, 20 times faster than the original implementation that we wrote. So, we'll, yeah, we'll start to see a lot of uh, speed improvements in the virtual DOM doing stuff like that, probably, where it knows that too much has changed and it'll just swap it out instead of, uh, doing a diff. So you mentioned really, React. And really frustrating to be the guy who had to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> to write the code yeah. to figure that out. <laughs> It'd be fun. It's Facebook. I'm sure it's just robots that do it now. <laughs> That's true. This is basically just replacing you all. You realize, right? It's just crowdsourced. Yeah, they're just... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> what were you going to say, Nick? I, I was going to say that, uh, well... There's React uh, and their virtual DOM impl implementation, and then you mentioned 
JS blocks. Um, Ember also has this built in, I think, with their Glimmer okay. engine. Um, yep. And there's there's Google's even looking at an an alternate approach that's I think called uh, IDOM or incremental DOM. Yeah. That um, instead of like building it up in memory, it, it actually diffs the actual DOM to do it. I may be wrong on that. I I have barely looked at it. But yeah, there's um, actually there's a num- yeah there's a number of dipl- different implementations. Uh, some of them are invisible to you. So like some yeah. like some of the template languages are doing uh, this virtual DOM type behavior, but it's not exposed to you as that's what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And I we'll think call it variable so, binding so, and stuff like that. Oh uh, yeah. So there's some benefits that we just listed with that. Are there any other benefits to virtual DOM? I mean, just the doing things statelessly, I think, is is the biggest deal, uh, or is the biggest benefit to doing it, right? So instead of instead of making manual DOM changes, you're setting a bunch of properties and then calling render on a big old block of HTML, a big old block of DOM changes, uh, and and that's the that's the thing that I think is is the most important. Are there any big drawbacks? Uh, it could be slower. Uh, it definitely could be slower. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things that you'd be able to figure out when you're writing an app is is whether you've created a situation where it, it is causing a lot of problems. And then you can switch back to something that is a little bit more manual, a little bit more close to the metal. It'd be interesting to see how that shakes out um, you know, with people starting to use it in different implementations and, and see how um, you know it works in the real world. Yep. You know, I could definitely, it's also one of those things that I would think it's fresh. It'd be hard initially to determine, um, you know, if you're going to cause speed problems, you know, if it's going to, especially when you're talking about building an app, because, you know, in the beginning, it'll probably be, you know, quite fast. Um, and maybe the more things that you add on or change, then you realize, okay, this is actually a lot slower. So it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out or if, you know, the tools progress fast enough that it's really a non-issue. Um, cause I know that that was the deal too, with query selectors back in the day, you know, there were definitely times where, um, which is shocking now, but I still like when I'm doing query selector stuff, I, I'm always trying to think about those things. Like as if they're still, <laughs> if it's still a slow thing, I, I think, oh, should I use an ID here and just do get element by ID and <laughs> stuff like that. And then it's like, I don't need to worry about that. Like I used to, but <laughs> yeah, definitely that stuff is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that shakes out if, if, it's the same kind of thing where initially, you know, there's these constraints and then, so you talked about these different things, um, like JS blocks, uh, that, that have these implementations. Is this going to be an implementation that browsers will, will do, or is this going to, you know, I guess like, what's the status of this? Like, what, is this a ECMAScript spec or is it something else? Uh, I can't. I think it'd be difficult for the browsers to do because a lot of a lot of the changes you're going to make are kind of outside of uh, outside of the scope of HTML. Sometimes, uh, like when you're changing styles, uh, for example, uh, it's going to be a little bit strange uh, for browsers to be able to handle some of that stuff. You have to create kind of ways around it, but. <clears throat> It's possible that there might be a specific implementation, a specific way of doing a virtual DOM that could. Well, make I guess it, when you say implementation, a, the question being, is it a, is there a specification written somewhere that people are following, or is is this something different? Not that I know of. 
Nick yeah, might know. Not that there... I know of either. No, yeah. not that I know of. It's pretty new. I mean, relative to other things that have been that have been done. So we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it's it's that's the fun thing about this stuff is that you know who knows in a few years this might be something that you know has a a written out thing. This is this is what it means to be you know a virtual virtual dom. Um, kind of like how query selectors were. You know, like yeah. I guess whatever jQuery did, it just became like that's that's just how you do it. Um, <laughs> so. One other benefit that I, I saw when I was researching Virtual DOM a bit more was that um, because you're replacing your standard me- um, DOM method calls that you would normally do, like document.createElement or, or query selector, any of those, um, one thing that I, I saw like React can do and others is uh, you can actually render your views on the server so that you can deliver them faster yeah. and not have to wait for the, the browser to render them so your initial initial views can be all set up and ready to go and then you can use the virtual dom to make any incremental updates that you need to after the page is already loaded yep so i think that's another big nice. a big win for it so to use um a virtual dom implementation you mentioned that react has uh you know a virtual dom implementation and js blocks and, and these things um are there implementations like do you have to use react in order to use this or how would you go about it if you were you know just if you already had something that you were doing you know you already had a framework and you're already building something but you wanted to try this out i'm pretty sure react is almost entirely just virtual dom implementation so so that would be a good a good project to use uh if you wanted to integrate in your code because i think i think react's very i mean lightweight in quotes i don't think there's there's (laughs) anything that's I don't think there's anything that's unnecessary in React if you wanted to just add a virtual DOM implementation to your project. That's what I would cool. start with if I was messing with it. Okay. So you were saying that the you can render the whole HTML thing on the server, so it would piece everything all together and then serve it up as just a static HTML yes. to the app, or does it do it differently? Um, so it would... I. Uh, again, I haven't really used it, but just from the examples that I saw, um, and I was looking at the React server example um, on NPM, and it looks like it builds out the page, and then, uh, but it also sets up React in there. So the like the initial view is is pre-rendered for you, so that you don't have to load the browser and then load React and then load your code and then render everything. It'll it the just page boot, will just it be bootstrap faster. Yeah. Yeah. But then React is still in the page so that you can, you know, if, if it's an interactive page, your user can still add another item to their to-do list and it'll just work like a normal React app would. It'll, it'll be like the thing where you load a lower quality version of an image and then you load the full version of the image. Yeah, I can't they, wait until the day we figure out a better app example than a to-do app. <laughs> yeah. I think that someone needs to do like a million dollar X prize or something for that. It's a it's a list with a form and crud and oh, it's pretty. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, except for it doesn't actually. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's historical now. Everybody it is. is written against it. To it's do the hello world of it. it is. It's the hello world. It's just so. Oh man. It's hello framework. It's like oh look, I wrote a framework this weekend and it does it does the to do. It's he- hello get milk. <laughs> it's like. Okay, cool. Can it do anything else that's actually complicated, or nope? Just does the to-do list. Okay. Well, 
cool. it's it's JavaScript. You you barely have time between framework releases to write the to do. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. If we made it more, if there was a more complicated thing, it, nothing would ever get released. Very true. <laughs> okay, it's, never mind then. I'm I'm just step back from that idea. So Neil, uh, can I ask you one more question? Yep. Uh, about React specifically, I guess. Um, so one thing that React comes with, or that the way that you can use React is with JSX. And this, I guess, okay. might kind of tie into template strings a little bit uh, from our previous topic. But I, I just wanted to see what your thoughts are on that, if you had any. I mean, on the... on uh, JSX itself, like mixing in markup into your JavaScript. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. I haven't messed around with that very much. Um, kind of my favorite article has been how to use React without JSX. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. I mean, that... that the whole, I, from what I understand, the whole idea of JSX is that you uh, kind of declare your uh, HTML as a, t- a type of code that looks just like HTML. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And well, they're, they're, they're doing that with, C- they're with CSS much. now, right? I think I saw that uh, over the weekend. Yeah. There, there's a thing with CSS, which I thought uh, I watched a, a, a talk that was given on it, and I thought it was interesting as well. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's the approach that we would take, so I haven't messed around with it very much. Sure. No, and yeah. initially looking at it, yeah, initially looking at it, it's like yeah. you're mixing all of this, like HTML and JavaScript together, and you know, we're always it's like ingrained into web developers. Don't don't put JavaScript in your HTML, and then yeah. it's like oh, with React, put HTML in your JavaScript, kind of. <laughs> um, and and I agree. Initially looking at it, it's kind of disgusting looking um but it uh it's scary <laughs> it, it is it is but at, at the same time like the javascript that you're writing right there with that has such intimate knowledge of the the yeah. dom uh or the the markup itself so it's it i don't know i don't know where i am on that yeah I just uh, you know i wanted you to just I tell never, me what, what to think yeah tell me what to think i was just gonna say that too <laughs> i don't so, know yet uh, <laughs> templated that's strings not a good have- answer yeah, templated strings have the tag templates in there. Uh, I mean, yep. that might be able to compile some JSX stuff Yeah, um, for you to make it a little less heinous to have you know HTML in JavaScript. Well, I, I look forward to everyone using that and then finding that the problems with it and then the re- overreaction going back the other way. Yeah. And then, 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 when it's all split up again, going going back to pulling it all together again. Everyone starts um, it's doing pretty much a cosmic like big bang, big crunch cycle that goes on with these things. Everyone starts doing right. craft DOM changes. Yeah. <laughs> pretty soon, as soon as anybody you know actually gets good at React, they'll they'll obviously have to go back and create another framework and a to do app. Well, you know, it is like one of those things where uh, if you're using React, and I, I haven't obviously used it, um, but you know, looking at some of the ideas, it's like, well, you know, for what they built it for and what they're using it for. And, you know, if you're, if you're using similar things, that might not be a bad approach, but I'm sure that it's going to get abused and built, you know, enterprise, large enterprise apps will get built with it. And then there'll be, you know, 500 developers with, you know, all these files strewn about with random markup here and there. And then there will be these big problems and then everyone will freak out. Um, Three different virtual DOM implementations included in the project. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Including the project, include on the page load. Yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's always just surprising the, the backlash that happens where it's like 
these patterns arise and it's like, oh, this is the way you should do things. And then people take that as gospel. Like it's the only way you can do something. And it's like, no, there's specific cases where you probably wouldn't want to do that. You know, you wouldn't want to do this thing this way, but that's the way you're supposed to do it. Like, I don't know, mobile design first, design for mobile first. And then two years later, everyone's like, maybe don't do that. Yeah, that's right. You probably (laughs) shouldn't do that if no one comes to your thing in mobile um, or you're building a certain thing that doesn't require that, um, maybe don't, don't, don't do that even if that's the mantra. So anyway, let's move on now to the bug of the week. Neil, let's hear about your bugs. My bug this week is pretty fun. Uh, and it's more about not really trying to figure out why things behave the way they do and just accepting them as fact as soon as you see them. Uh, and there was this, uh, working on someone else's code, so I, I didn't write this initial code, so I, I hadn't understood are you how trying it to, Are you trying to say that the blame isn't yours for the bug? It's, it, I created the bug. Okay, let's just, I just want to get that out in the I beginning. I created the so bug because I didn't understand what was going on under the hood. Um, and I think what was going on under the hood was is very interesting. Uh, so there was, uh, they, they created these two objects, uh, and these two objects had a bunch of uh, locators to find nodes in the DOM. And they put two of them in this array. Um, one of them located one branch of, of the code that you could look through, or of the DOM that you could look through, and one of them located another part of the DOM that you could look through. And the way that they wrote it is that they called, uh, they referenced the array, and they called dot .take on the array. So a function called take. And I didn't, I mean, I, I assumed that they'd added something to the prototype that found the right thing that it was supposed to use. Uh, and Isn't that a big no-no? Part- <laughs> you, you made an assumption? <laughs> I made an assumption. Which is the no-no, the, the adding the prototype well, thing or the, the assumption? <laughs> well, both of them. <laughs> so well, I, they might have added it to the instance somewhere too, like it might not have been super bad. Uh, but then uh, I had used it in a bunch of tests and a bunch of individual tests, uh, functional tests, and it worked fine every time. There was no problems whatsoever. Uh, and then I wrote a test suite where it performed a bunch of tests in a row. Uh, and the second and fourth test, like every other test would just fail. Uh, and I, it took me a while to figure out why it was happening. And I eventually figured out that there was a part of the code that I didn't, didn't understand, and that was the take function. Uh, so I had to do a little bit of sleuthing to find the implementation that they had. Um, but on the array prototype, they created this function called take, take. And what it would do is it would pop the end of the array and move it to the front of the array. So there were only two things in the array. So every time you call take, it was reversing the array, basically. Uh, and I don't know why they wrote this to begin with. I cannot tell you why they chose to call this take function on the array. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, trying to use the wrong area of Dom every other test. And it was pretty crazy that that's what was happening in the first place and pretty crazy to try to figure out. I don't envy that one. <laughs> that sounds like a hard one to track down. Yeah. It was just, and I, I'm, I, I I'm sure they had they a good reason. They might have a long time ago. I just, I could not, for the life of me, figure out why they were calling this function that 
popped the last thing off the array and put it on the front of the array. You know, the best part about those is when it's code that has been around for a long time and someone wrote it a long time ago that did something specific and it was called take. And then someone changed it because they needed it to be do something different and then it, oh, so on and so forth. And then eventually the take function does something it never did before at all. It's yep. completely different. But to keep the, the, they just keep the name same because it's, you know, it's there. Yep. Um, and then you end up with this weird thing that does not do what you think it should do or has a weird name or <laughs> weird properties that you're like, why is it doing that? Who knows? Nobody, the person who probably last touched it probably doesn't even know why it does that. <laughs> Yeah, the moral of the story is if you see some code that just doesn't make any sense, you should look into it as soon as you see it, rather than when it starts to cause problems. Are you telling me I have to go look into Python now? <laughs> okay, Nick, why don't you tell us about Chrome extensions? Cool, yeah. So um, I guess this is on the topic because I gave a short uh, lunch pail, we call them just kind of Friday afternoon over lunch, quick. A lunch and learn, as lunch and learn. enterprise people go. might call them. Yeah. Wait, before we get into this story, can I tell them what we did this morning? Yeah. Because, <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah. interestingly, you all were involved in this, so that's pretty awesome. Um, I was only involved in watching um, and keeping the official time, which was very important. So it's Halloween week as we record this, and... Um, Every day we're doing different little Halloween things, um, but because we're a virtual company, we have to be creative. So we did a bobbing for apples um, competition uh, over uh, like a Google Hangout, uh, and so you were timed, and you had to have a, some water and bob for apples. Um, and you guys, Nick, just laid out on the floor with his awesome horse mask on, or horse head. I don't even know what you call that. And don't forget his tuxedo shirt. The tuxedo shirt, yes. Um, and it was, it was pretty, pretty fun watching them. And so Nick, um, who actually just got dropped from our call. So hopefully he's able to join back. Ah, there he is. Um, (laughs) so, so Nick, after, after a couple people went, Nick pulled out, uh, a crazy time that I was just like, what? Cause it had taken people 19, 20, 30 seconds to, uh, to get the apple. And then here comes Nick who claims that he hadn't practiced and he claims that he's never done this and you know, like, whatever. Um, and it was like 3.91 seconds to get the apple. <laughs> I'm totally and serious. I did not, I've never done this before. I didn't even have apples in the house. Had to go there were them. accusations that he unhitched, unhinged his jaw <laughs> because it was just like, he just went right in effortlessly and just got it out. Um, I, we know, you know, the convention shenanigans. Um, but the prize for this was an Apple Watch or very uh, smart watch or whatever if you don't have an iPhone, which leads to the next one. So, um, Neil, how did, or, well, Neil, you went, uh, did you go like third or second? You didn't do so well. I didn't do it at all. Oh, you didn't do it. Oh, yeah, that's Neil right. skipped it. Neil it didn't was, uh, do it. Brian. It was Brian, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then uh, we get to um, Paul Shannon, your last, and you like Nick had just gone. What were you thinking at the point when he got it in three point nine seconds? I was amazed. I um, I was pretty sure that I was just doing it for show at that point, and I thought it was it was all done. And um, I just kind of waited for the time to go and closed my eyes and. 
dove in and somehow I found the apple right away and I bit and pulled up and I got I got some what was the time? Three point eight four. Three point eight four. Yeah. yeah. So I was just I was drenched in water. I just went for it and the apple was is perfectly right there. Um that was so, unreal. Yeah. I was, you know, I, I, I felt like I needed to tell this story just because I couldn't believe how great it, useless stuff you guys are. And that is yet <laughs> another example right there. But, you know, it's funny is that I was I was the timekeeper. And as I'm sitting there, so when Nick did it, I I was shocked. Like, I hit the button. I was thinking, I must have, like, that, he must not have got it or something. Like, what, something must have happened. And then I see him with the apple. And it's like, oh, my gosh. So you're admitting then, it was a timing error on your part. No, absolutely not. I was glued <laughs> to it, man. But I was just, I couldn't believe it. It was so fast. I tapped it. I was like, what happened? There's no way. And then you had it. And I called the time. But Paul, when you went, I almost did a timing error because I had no expectation that you'd get it in under 10 seconds. So I was kind of just like, you know, I, I hit the button and I look up at the screen and I look down at the phone and I look at the screen. I look down at the phone. I look at the screen and you have it. I hit the button like instantly. And I look down and I'm like, how it? No way! Like I called the tie three point eight four. So anyway, that's just the weird stuff we do at SitePen, and the lunch pail is a less weird thing that we do. Um, and <laughs> I just had to tell that story. So yeah, um, yeah. both both are amazing. It, it's great to be able to to do crazy things and then also share tech with people who know what they're doing. And it, it's it's always nice working with you guys. Yeah, it's fun. You know, we're all one hundred percent remote, and you know. Who would have thought that we'd be bobbing for apples <laughs> over Google Hangouts, you know? Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, I certainly did not. <laughs> we appreciate that you guys did it. <laughs> I always well, Carrie that. was so bummed that she only had three signups initially. And so I signed on and I think Brian signed on and, and he ended up only having a bathtub for a valid uh, bucket. And uh, he ended up wrapping his laptop in plastic in order to record the whole thing. It was quite a sight. That's awesome. All right, so why don't you tell us, Nick, about the lunch pail and uh, the Chrome extensions now that I interrupted you. Yeah, speaking of pointless things that we do, Chrome extensions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I gave a lunch pail talk last week about Chrome extensions, um, and they're just fun to, to play around with, but I try to be to make them kind of useful. I don't make anything really crazy, but, um, I guess this started back in my first job out of college. I created a simple grease monkey script for this app that we were working on because the navigation in the app, it, this app was all written running in quirks mode and there was no possible way that we were ever going to change that. And so the navigation wouldn't actually work in Firefox. It would only work in IE six and then later seven. And, uh, but I wanted to be able to debug with cool things like Firebug and, and all of that. So I wrote a grease monkey script that would inject some JavaScript into the page that would make the navigation work, um, properly so that I could navigate to the page and then somewhat debug. And so that, that was fun playing around with way back years ago. Um, but you know, I tried to find simple, fun little things to improve workflow or, as I like to say, I'm, I'm a programmer, I'm lazy, I don't want to do things over and over. So if I can write something to make things easier, then it's a lot better. And that started off at SitePen with um, creating a, just a Chrome extension that would take our um, support page and the list of support issues 
that we have and color code them so that I could keep track of what is going on, what we're waiting on, what we need to respond to, what might be late, uh, all of these different uh, statuses and just made it a lot easier to work with. And, um, and so I, I just gave a little brief talk about that and how it's fun. And the nice thing about Chrome extensions are they're just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript with a manifest uh, JSON file that you drop into a folder and then you can pretty much just use. They're really easy to get set up and really easy to work with. And um, they're fun. And uh, I believe that um, Mozilla is actually working on a similar API they're calling web extensions um, that's going to have um, similar APIs to what Chrome supports along with additional ones. And so it's just nice that we can extend the browser in ways that we need using browser technologies, JavaScript, HTML, and CSS, and um, and really get more power out of what we're doing. So that's kind of so what, what I is about. Um, what's the development process with that? Like you you said you create some stuff, you put it in a folder, um, and then you, I like do you so then you probably have to go and install it or something, right? But then like what's what is it like when you're you know actively developing it? Um, you know, do you just update the stuff in that folder and it just automatically is updated or do you have to quit the browser or how does that work? Yeah, you do have to um, tell the browser that things are updated or tell it to reload, but you basically just go into the Chrome preferences and then there's an extensions um, section in there and you turn on developer mode so that you can install what they call unpacked extensions, which are extensions that aren't zipped up into a, I think the, the um, extension is CRX. They're they're just fo uh, folders on your system that it'll load up and look for a manifest.json file. So you put it in developer mode, and then you tell it to load an unpacked extension, and then it loads it in there, and it'll show it um, in your extensions list. You can um, enable or disable it, and then there's also a reload button um, or a reload link, and you can just click that every time you make a change to uh, tell it to update what it's what it's doing. And then everything is just defined in that JSON file, uh, the manifest one. You tell it what type of scripts. There's different types of um, scripts that you can run. There's content scripts, which have access to the DOM uh, of the page that you're currently on, but they don't have access to the JavaScript running on that page. They can just um, pass messages back and forth through the DOM, or you can inject a script into the DOM and then use that to communicate back. You have background pages that just kind of always exist in the background so that they can do things like listen for notifications or do um, other things in the background. And then you have um, you have page extensions um, so you can add like little buttons to your page. Like if you use a Chromecast, you might have an extension that adds a little Chromecast button to, to Chrome. Or um, if you use an ad blocker like uBlock Origin or... Um, any of the other ones, they'll add little buttons there. And then you can also extend the dev tools as well, which is really cool because you can create um, dev tools for the specific applications that you're working on that make working with that application a lot easier. So if there's a lot of stuff that you always have to do, um, and it's just a lot of boilerplate code, you can kind of automate that away and create a little panel in the dev tools that can give you the information quicker that you need or can allow you to debug it in a, a specific way or do whatever you need to do, which is pretty cool. That is pretty awesome. I'm going to have to get in on that stuff with my fantasy football thing that I never finished. 
um, because partly it was annoying to work with the user scripts the way I did um, because you have to serve them. <laughs> and oh, then yeah. you're running like a local server to like do everything. And then it just becomes this kind of annoying pain. Um, but I look into that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's they, cool because the scripts have a lot of um, permissions that they don't, that normal JavaScript wouldn't have running in a browser. So you can do cross domain um, Ajax calls and you can interact with the, the pieces of the browser as well as the page that it's on. And uh, so there's, there's quite a bit that you can do over just injecting scripts into the page. Nick, do you have a good way of testing these or, you know, can you just use it against a regular piece of HTML to test or how would you go about doing that? Uh, it depends on the, the extension that you're creating. Um, for the one that I did um, for the support page, I was basically just, um, I, I just had the, the pages DOM to look at. And so I was just looking for different pieces of the page and then adding in classes, um, injecting classes onto those rows that I wanted to change how they look. And then I just inject a CSS page into that. So I could, that one was probably pretty simple because I could write some simple tests around that that just take, you know, with this given input, expect that this class gets added to it or expect that this class doesn't get added to it or whatever. That would be pretty simple. But for the other ones, um, yeah, I, I haven't looked into testing them too much. Yeah, that's what I'm most curious about is just that that whole process of creation. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of using the tools, but, you know, some of the things, I, I, I have to look into it more because the need to, you know, click the, you know, go to the preferences and click the reload thing is kind of annoying. I wonder if there's a way to have a button like on your browser that like on the browser bar that would just do that for you or something. Or maybe you can create your own extension for that to do that. I don't know. Um, but there was <laughs> actually a, a simpler one that I use um, that Google actually created. It's called the, um, oh man, what's it called? It's called Chrome Apps and Extensions Developer Tool. And when you open it, it's just a, a separate window that opens up that basically has the same um, view that you, you see in your Chrome preferences. And so it's just like a window. I can put it on one of my other monitors and just have it sitting there and then quickly hit reload. It, oh, nice. It takes a fraction of a second to reload, so it's, it's not a big deal to do that. But, yeah, it is kind of annoying that you have to always go back and, and make sure you hit reload if you just, like, make code changes and then refresh the browser like you're normally accustomed to doing, uh, things will yeah. just look the same. So you have to make sure that you, you do hit that reload every time. Yeah, it's great until you run into a bug that you can't figure out what's happening. Um, and then every single time you have to reload and then do it, yeah. now you just get more frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I ran into that I sort of thing when I did a, I did a for Yahoo's Fantasy Football, I, their, um, their waiver priority system, like it's not drag and drop. So you have to make like there's all these um, just like input boxes and you have to say like what your priority is to add someone and drop this other person um, and you can't reorder it easily by dragging and dropping. And not only do you have to set the box to like, oh, this is my top priority now, you have to then change every other box. So if you have 10 waivers and you want to move one to the top, you have to then change all of them. Um, so I made it a dra drag and drop thing, but I was having problems with it, and it was so frustrating because not only did I have to make the changes, but then you know I had to like reload, um, 
I don't, oh man, it was a mess. But anyway, same kind of thing where you, something that wasn't a problem until I ran into a problem. <laughs> and then it became <laughs> the most angering problem ever. Um, okay, so we saved it for the end because that's fitting. The importance, <laughs> of having, <laughs> the importance of having a deployment strategy at the outset of the project. Um, my strategy, Paul, is just to throw it over to everyone else and tell them to do it. Is that not a valid strategy? Maybe. Uh, apparently it is. You're not alone. Okay, uh, good. No, people, okay, good. Yeah, a lot of people, that's their development strategy or deployment strategy is, is they're going to get their features in. And then throw it over the wall, and and that's that's somebody else's job, like ops or, or somebody, or maybe maybe QA if, if you know you want to have them deal with it. Um, but yeah, the when you have when you start a project, the first thing you know is typically well, it's typically you know when it's due, and then the second thing you know is you know you're going to have to deliver it when it's due. You're going to have to deploy it to a server somewhere, unless you're just you know making prototypes constantly in some basement somewhere. So. In order to to do that, you're going to have to figure out well where am I deploying to, and what does that environment look like, and what versions of software run on that. You know, if I'm if I'm running PHP or Node or Ruby, and um, what systems are you know what does that entail? And so, um, a lot of times, what happens is is deployment since it happens at the end of a project, people wait and say, "Well, I'm going to take care of it when it makes most sense to." And and for most people, that tends to be at the end. Um, unfortunately, what happens in the end is you have crammed in all your features and you've barely made your deadline or your deadline's quickly approaching, and so you know you need to get it out. And so, in order to do that, you wrap it up as quickly as possible, and then you get it on the server somehow, like you. Oftentimes, do it by copying your development environment, or you may have a place that kind of fits for it already, and so you copy that environment and and shoehorn what you're doing in there, and that that isn't a great way of doing things all the time. Um, you know, sometimes when you're under the gun, great, it has to get done, get it out that way. But since you're starting a project and you know you have to deploy it, the first thing that you should start looking at is well. What does the environment look like, and how am I going to deploy it, and what tools are going to be used in there? And so, if you if you start development with deployment up front, it allows you to do a few things. Like it it lets your developers work in an environment that is production like, that they know and, and have knowledge of what versions of things are coming out, and and what they're going to be able to to deploy to. Um, it it lets uh, development f- actually complete. So, so many times projects without a deployment strategy, you know, de- and not having a deployment strategy offers this other hurdle. And so if, if you have this last hurdle to do, it's harder to say, well, let's just release it. Like we've, we've established that we've gotten all the features in that we want for our first initial product, or we want to do A-B testing with a beta group. Well, those decisions are hard to make when you already don't have a deployment or, or, or way of deploying. Um, and then finally, like if you have this deployment already ready to go and you have a way of doing this, it makes it so much easier to start building your tests and creating a continuous integration environment to automate those tests around your project. So you know you're going to have to deploy anyway. Doing it up front alleviates a lot of the pressure and, and there's now becoming a lot more tools that, that help assist with this. Um, one of my favorite has been Docker. 
And so Nick did a lunch pail over uh, Chrome extensions. Uh, I was I was asked to do one as well, and I had the pleasure of sharing kind of uh, a big brief preview of Docker and Linux containers and, and all that with um, everybody here at Sitepen. So um, Docker is a great way of defining your environment ahead of time. It's a good way of encapsulating it, encapsulating this definition in, in a service. And what you can do with it is you can, if you want, you can deploy it to production, but it also helps wrap up all the environment um, variables and, and versions and things into a single file that allow you to um, hand that off to all your developers. Um, one of the problems that, that I ran into at, at one of my companies is um, they, they didn't have a, they had a wiki to set up your environment and they didn't have a really great way of, of solving it other than run through your wiki to set up your local development environment. And it got to the point where two days was an expected time it took for a developer to get their environment up on their local machine and, and functioning which is like completely crazy. You know, this is something that could be automated and, and out there in, in an hour or two. So like a tool like Docker um, helps define those environments and it helps you share it around your team. And, and then when you need to bring other people in, they can start up their environments quickly and already know what deployment is going to look like and, and what your target versions are. And it also eliminates the, well, it works on my machine uh, type scenarios because well you have the the machine it's been handed to you it's this this docker file and and it's described your environment for you and this is what we're going to deploy to so obviously if it doesn't work then at that that docker environment then then you have a problem but if it doesn't work on your machine that's your problem like you need to work with others and what's and the figure uh, out. what's the process um for updating so let's say you you have that right. You you have a, a Docker machine and you give it out to your developers. And you know as as you're going through, it's like oh you know we're going to actually add a couple things that we needed. Um, how does that get propagated to everybody? Well, it depends. Um, the easiest way is to just pass the a Docker file around, and the Docker file actually defines how your image is going to be built. And so developers can take that image and then rebuild it on their local machine. And oftentimes it just runs through a few scripts and uh, builds your image from there. Uh, the other option is you could just export your image and pass the image to developers to make sure that, hey, this is the, this is the quintessential package. We've already built this image, so you should be able to, to use this and not have any problems um, with your local builds or anything else like that. So you have a couple options there. That's pretty powerful. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have been part of teams where there isn't, uh, there wasn't a focus initially on what did, what version of something, um, and a lot of times it, it's minor. Like you know the you, the version that you're running of you know, this package or that package doesn't really matter that much. Like it's pretty much the same. Until you hit the one thing, which is why they revved to the next version, where you hit a bug in something, <laughs> and then you have the bug, but no one else does, or you have this feature now that no one else has, and how many times you then check in something, and then somebody, you know, they check it out, and it's like, oh, it's broken for me, but it's, it works for three other people, and you know, it's just like this minor version on this other package that you know, and it, it's just so important to, you know, 
previously without tools like this, you really had to be up on everybody saying, okay, you're going to install this version of this thing. But even that was difficult because, you know, they were running Linux or running OS 10 and you, you couldn't even be sure that what they were doing was even going to be the same, you know, like it would, it would function right. differently in, in OS 10 and it's such a nightmare. And so to actually work with tools like this is just so much nicer, um, to not have to, not have to worry about all this inconsistencies that you can just start and then you have everything that you need and yeah the you don't have to spend two days trying to set up your environment and have everyone else trying to help you because it turns out that the new version of the operating system that you run that because you got a new machine um it, you know everything's different on yours now and it's broken so it has to be fixed and things like that that i've seen and it's just uh, a nightmare Right. Or, oh, we're using the OpenJRE instead of, you know, instead of Java or Oracles. Right, right. And, or PHP is a major violator of uh, semantic versioning. And so they love to change things in minor versions and that break. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's a real opportunity to, to get everybody on the same page and not have to hunt down those bugs, which is really difficult to do. Yeah. But then what will you talk about on Bug of the Week? To, oh gosh! Hopefully, if we can just free up that segment for something great, I mean, that would make all developers' lives better. <laughs> That's a good point. All right. Well, I think that that is it for our show today. Um, thanks everyone for listening and uh, continuing to listen. We've been—it's been a a fun start, and we've learned a lot of stuff. And we're going to keep uh, improving. So if you have suggestions, um, you can tweet me at itori. That's letter I-T-O-R-E-Y. Um, of course, you can follow SitePen at SitePen. Um, and Nick Nisi is at Nick Nisi. Um, Neil, you're at Potted Meat. And I love that name, by the way, Neil. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's great. It's my favorite. I just retweeted something funny. So, Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, man. I should I should follow you. <laughs> and Paul, what is yours for for our listening audience? Or did you just not want anyone to know who you are? No, no. You can find me at uh, Developer Paul on Twitter on the tweets. Okay, awesome. Um, I'm going to join a social network that no one's ever heard of. I don't know what it is yet, but that I can just use as my platform to say random things that I don't want people to see. LinkedIn I don't know what that would be. That. Yeah, I was actually going to say Google Plus, but isn't that going away? I guess I was going to use that. And then I was like, I don't even know if that's existing anymore. So this joke that was in my head tried to come out and it just failed. Just like all of them tend to do these days. I'm not funny anymore. I may never have been. Just sit on your front porch. That could be your social network. Yell at people that pass by you. Do you know how many kids I want to yell at every day? Off my lawn. Yeah, I, I understand it now, now that I'm an adult <laughs> and I have kids running into my driveway and making my dogs bark and making me annoyed at things. I just want to yell at kids um, all the time because I'm, I'm a terrible person. Okay, that'll do it for us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I'll count to get Thank you started. You. One, two, three, four. I'll count to get you started. One, two, three, four. I was rolling down the window Cause I like to feel the wind blow We got a good thing Gonna see where the day goes Take it fast, take it real slow We got a good thing Hey, we got a good thing going Hey, we got a 